should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now, here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us here on this Tuesday. It's hashtag Giving Tuesday, the 28th of uh, November, or the Tuesday after Thanksgiving break. Usually it's Giving Tuesday. So if you're into that kind of stuff and you're thinking about giving to your favorite charity or maybe a new charity, I mean, there's so many new nonprofit or grassroots organizations, especially since uh, Donald Trump has become president, that that really could use the $5 or the $10 that you might have laying around. I mean, even an organization like Women's March, um, I believe they're trying to organize another year of a massive march. So if you can give $5 or 10 please think about those kind of uh, resistance organizations. For me, I would love it if you considered LGBTQ causes, especially nonprofit organizations that give directly back or provide services to transgender individuals. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. We've been really busy here at the Michelle Miao Show putting together the Commonwealth Club program that will really start to gel and uh, become much more concrete in its programming in the year 2018, or I should say January, in just a few weeks or so. Um, but until then, we're going to replay some interviews that we do outside of just the general Michelle Miao show, like, for example, the Coffee TV program and also the Commonwealth Club program that John does with his week-to-week political roundtable talk. And from time to time, we will have fresh new interviews. Uh, but, you know, it, it's just a, that's what we're going to do as we head into the holiday season. Things get kind of crazy. It's just easier to start producing for the future. And so some great programs that we have for you, one-on-one with someone like Dolores Huerta and Alicia Garza, uh, maybe even a program on black queer cinema with some notable famous directors and actors in Hollywood to talk about hiring transgender actresses and also queer writers. Um, So we're going to have programs like that coming up in 2018. So make sure you continue to follow the Michelle Miao Show. I brought my wife here on the show today, and I know it's not Sunday, but because I'm going to replay an interview that we did with her on the Coffee TV show. So, Tukta, welcome to the Michelle Miao Show. Hello, Michelle. (laughs) So, I'm going to play the interview that we did on Coffee TV. I'm very excited about that. Yeah, you are? (laughs) I haven't played it yet for radio. We did play it for, of course, obviously television. We loaded it up on the website so if you've been following the show you might have seen it already but um yeah i mean 
you know, I felt like we needed to tell her story. And we did that. <laughs> yes, it's a uh, make me really know it in that time. <laughs> it was your first American interview, I guess, television interview. Yeah, and I also love your show. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to love it. We're married now. No, but um, you know, it's the most watched show actually on Copy TV as well as on MichelleMiao.com. And I suspect that there were a lot of people from Thailand who were sh were watching this and were sharing it. Yeah. So what kind of feedback did you get? What did people say when they saw your performance and your interview on uh, the Michelle Miao show? They really love uh, that interview. They're like, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I'm just, I love your English. Even it's very easy for us too because they are the same level like me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we didn't we didn't do the interview in Thai. They, yeah, and they say, uh, I understand what you say, but when Michelle say, maybe we not understand. <laughs> They're so cute, like me. Aww. <laughs> Well, you know, just to kind of recap what we talked about, I mean, we fell in love, and right before Donald Trump became president, in fact, when we were falling in love, I was for sure, I was for sure that Hillary, uh, I was for sure that Hillary Clinton was going to be president of the United States, and not that you know I didn't, I just never thought that we would get to this place where. Um, it's become really, really bad, like racist and homophobic and transphobic here in America. Really bad. I mean, it's been this way before, but mm -hmm. but in my time, um, it really affected you and me. And that's what was so important to me was to exercise this new right that I have for marriage. You know that I wanted to protect that. I wanted to be able to have you in my life f forever. Oh. I love you, honey. <laughs> um, well, thank you for being in my life. I just wanted to have you to pop in to chat a little bit. We're going to play that interview. But on Sundays, you and I do another show called uh, Sunday Brunch, or I'm calling it Sunday Brunch with Michelle and Tukta, and we're going to record a fresh new one for this Sunday. We actually have an in-studio guest who's going to talk about their love life. So you get to, uh -huh. you get to talk to that person about love. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you like, uh, you know, Thai food, we give away Thai recipes, and we also play music from Thukta's albums. She is a famous country singer from Thailand. So that's Sundays at noon here on Progressive Voices Network. On Fridays, we do John Zipper's week-to-week -week political roundtable talk. For today, we're going to play a few interviews: one with Thukta talking about our relationship, uh, immigration, and Donald Trump. We also have an interview with other social justice warriors. So enjoy the program today, and we'll see you tomorrow at the same time, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. It's the Michelle Miao Show, your A to Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. Here's Michelle Miao. All right, wait no longer. The special, special person who's here in studio with us for tonight's interview is my wife. Yes, you heard that, my wife. Several years ago, when we were fighting for marriage equality, when the opportunity came, many gay and lesbian couples rushed to City Hall 
to marry because we knew that at any given time, it was possible that our rights could also be taken away. It was a long fight, but we got there. We finally got federal recognition of same-sex marriages in the entire country. And only a few years later, in 2017, earlier this year, a man by the name of Donald J. Trump became president of the United States and many rights, many rights that impacted my own identity became questionable. And so, in order to preserve my right to marry, that's what I did because my wife is from Thailand. Here's the interview with Orwan. Orwan, welcome to the show. <laughs> I'm calling you Orwan, I'm not calling you your stage name. Um, I figured if Ellen can have her wife on the show, well then so can I. And I'm saying this for the first time here on the show, uh, you are my wife. So many people are asking, who is Orwan? Who are you? <laughs> um, I am from Thailand and my work is I'm singer. <laughs> yes, that's right. We met a year ago. Um, at Halloween weekend after one of your concert. It was your, your first concert, yeah. like a US tour. And you thought that I was incredibly like handsome, I think, right? You are. No? <laughs> <laughs> what was I like? You know, brown hair and red sleep. And I don't know that time, uh, what you look like. Maybe you are the old girl gold. Like. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about my Halloween costume. So I was dressed as Hillary Clinton. And so now fast forward to uh, 2017, you came back to, to visit me, but Donald Trump had become president. Yeah, that time. Yeah, do you remember that time when you know, I laid in bed and I told you all my friends are going to the airport to protest? Yeah, I remember that time. And you not sleep like <laughs> one week. Did that scare you as someone who was in the United States but has a visa? Yeah, I'm really scared and that in that time because I'm just falling in love with you and I don't wanna lose you and I don't know if I go back and I don't know, maybe they will not let me come to visit you again. I asked you to marry me. And you're crazy, you said yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. And I never do like this before. I'm very, very people who love a single life because when you are a singer, you can go anywhere, nobody check you. And I love to be with my friend. I love to go party, drink, eat food, go traveling. And when I saw you, my heart never say like this. Before, I'm really old now, 33. For me, I own for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I have many, many boy friends. For, is like a friend. They come and they want to be my boyfriends. And yes, I know Tom. And they love to asking me for be his wife. Can you marry me? I say, no, 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 I'm not ready. <laughs> Just relax. Give me may maybe our 35, maybe I will plan about that. And I like make them far away from me. 
Well, like I said, I, I don't mean to say you're crazy for wanting to marry me, but we were in Las Vegas for a Pride conference, and I, I bought a $25 ring at the Gold Coast <laughs> Casino, and then I proposed to you. Now you're settling into San Francisco. Um, how do you like San Francisco? Um, San Francisco is cool country. It's like cool for me. Everybody uh, free, have party every day, like Bangkok in Thailand. And everybody like look cool, smiling like Thailand. Well, you, you performed for San Francisco Pride uh, this year. Yeah, that was yeah. your first Pride ever. <laughs> what did you think? I'm very nervous because they don't know my language. But when I stand on the stage, they never make me like who you are. They look at me so proud of you. I love your song, your song. I really love them. I really love people here. They are like open their mind. They are love when I look at their eye, them eye. Always they like smiling. They're like, welcome. So what will you tell people when you go back to visit Thailand? What will you tell them about your time here in San Francisco and America? I said, every day I'm here, I'm really happy because people here, uh, we love to cooking, we love to spend time. We don't love, uh, we don't spend about a bad thing. Always, even, I. Uh, I'm not be your girlfriend before. You love to come visit us, and we love to cooking, eating together, like a family, like a Thai <laughs> culture. So it's very similar. That's what the point of America is. We're all diverse. <laughs> we come from different places. And one of the most important thing about uh, immigration, which I'm trying to point out on this show, is that a lot of us come for love. Love of your family, love for the country, love of the people. Oh, Aura One, you make my heart melt. Don't go away. When we come back, Aura One performs for us right here on the Michelle Miao Show. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. Many nonprofits rely on events to raise money, create space for community gathering, and offer opportunities to network. But how many hours in a day do community leaders have when they're busy changing the world? Imagine your next event, gala, festival, or celebration professionally executed with creative ideas and ideals to match your community service. 
IDK is the community's trusted event production company. Visit IDKEvents.com for all your event production needs. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Let's wrap our conversation with my wife, my wife, Orwan, and a very special performance by her. So you mentioned earlier you are a singer, so you're a Malam singer, which is like a country singer, if yeah. we were to translate it here in America. Um, talk to us about, you know, your, your life in Udon. You're from Udon, northeastern Thailand, so that's known as the country of, you know, the country, yeah, yeah. of Thailand. Near Laos. Yeah. I drive like a half hour, I can go in Laos. Mm -hmm. We are like a close friends, Thai and Lao, like a sister, brother, and uh, I'm speak the same language, mm -hmm. same Lao. It's my udon. This they speak like Lao, and I am, I am a farmer. Actually, I have a lamb farm. A lime farm. A lime that farm. is, I know you. <laughs> you can go through an entire bag of limes, and I and understand why. Um, well, we're going to actually have you perform, but my, my last question for you is, you know, uh, because Ellen asked her wife on her show, you know, what marriage w was like, how she liked married life. So what, what do you like about being married to, to me? <laughs> I think um, why I miss you very late, because... Every day, like amazing, good time or bad time, or sad, cry, smiling. I have somebody I can believe. I can lay down with you. I can telling you everything. I can believe you. You're you will so not sweet. Cheat on me. <laughs> you're so sweet. You're, you're going like on a very serious note. I thought you were going to say something like. You know, one of the things I hate about marriage is you make me kill mosquitoes. Mm. And then the things that I love about marriage is, you know, I wake up next to you. Um, yeah. But that is really sweet. I won't cheat on you. <laughs> <laughs> I've declared it on this show. Yeah. And now Orawan will sing for us. Her stage name is actually Tukita Top Line from Thailand. And here is her most popular single, Sao Lam Thakon. <laughs> ไอ้ทางยังกังกบ
Thank you, Orawan. Thank you so much. You are the light of my life. Don't go away. When we come back, we speak to Sean from the Port Bar and some amazing things he's doing for the East Bay LGBTQ community. Welcome back. 
We've talked a lot about it here on the show that many of us are just moving around the Bay Area because of gentrification and displacement. Well, my next guest is an awesome guy because he's doing great new things in Oakland, a home to the LGBTQ community. Let's get to Sean from the Port Bar. The San Francisco Bay Area has seen some drastic changes in the LGBTQ social space. We've seen everything from disruption of communities to gentrification and just overall changes. Why open the Port Bar in Oakland? Uh, I think LGBTQ people are still looking uh, for connection, like, like everyone. You know, we have all these fancy gadgets, and uh, certainly that has given people uh, one way to meet online. Um, but we are all still looking for that, that human experience and the opportunity to connect with people similar to us who may have shared our struggles or uh, will understand our stories in a ways that other people won't. Since 2000, uh, when the first U.S. census counted uh, LGBT people and couples, Oakland has had the largest concentration of female couples in the country. So having a seven-day-a-week bar in downtown Oakland for the LGBT community has really been long overdue. And we, my partner and I, uh, were very interested in, in having something in our community. We kept hearing people say, oh, I'm going to do this. Oh, I'm going to do it. And then it would never come to fruition. We uh, really have been involved in our community in a number of different ways and felt like this is a void that needed to be filled. We came forward with the Port Bar about 14 months ago, and the reception has been great. So I mentioned earlier, the San Francisco LGBTQ social space has changed, but so has the nightlife and bar scene. We're seeing less of the bars concentrated in certain neighborhoods and kind of dispersing out in different spaces. Talk to us about what that means to you and what changes you might have experienced. I've watched the growth of Oakland in really positive ways. Um, at the same time, seen you know a lot of displacement with some of the growth, which is really sad and troubling to me. I uh, really want uh, consider housing to be so important to getting people off the street and uh, getting. I worked a lot with young people, getting young people. So many of them were from Oakland. They just had families that were shockingly dysfunctional, uh, that led them to be in a foster care and needing this. 40% of them, if not more, were queer, uh, LGBTQ identified, and so those kids who didn't even find a place for themselves in foster care, faced lots of bullying and, and abuse, and they got on their own two feet. I, I've been sad to watch those young people and others have to go further out than Oakland. We've had this renaissance in downtown Oakland, and part of the poor bar anchoring in the spot that we have at, uh, right next door to the Paramount Theater is in response to us really wanting to, in this renaissance of bars and clubs that have come in, they're great, um, but we want to stake a place of our own um, that lasts for time for the entire LGBT community that's been there and that's coming there. And that's one of the things that we just love about Oakland and then also really inspires us with the, with the Port Bar. We, we had this idea, but we weren't sure. And it's a bunch of money to put forward and take a risk to open any kind of small business, specifically uh, a bar or restaurant. What I'm talking about being really inspired is that whether people have been in Oakland three weeks or a third generation, they have such a sense of pride in being in Oakland. It's not just a zip code. It's a great place that they are really wanting to settle down and, and, and deepen their roots in. 
And so that is one of the things that keeps me hopeful about the city of Oakland and its growth, is that we will be able to continue to do that and that people uh, want an LGBT establishment to be there and to be part of that anchor in the community. Don't go away, we'll continue with the Michelle Meow Show right after these messages. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face -face with today's thought leaders. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. is Evelina Galang. She's got a new book out called Lola's House, Filipino Women Living with War. The book shares stories of 16 women who became sex slaves during World War II. Let's get to the interview. You just completed a very important book, mm -hmm. an intense book, mm -hmm. Lola's House, and it focuses on the lives of Filipino women who have come forward as victims of war, uh, essentially. Let's talk about who these women were and what happened to them. Sure, so um, I have had the honor of meeting 40 surviving Filipina comfort women of World War II. And then the book itself, Lola's House, focuses on 16 of the women who uh, survived that experience. And I don't know if you or your audience members know anything about the story of the comfort women, but in the Philippines, there were more than a thousand women who were taken during World War II by the Japanese Imperial Army, and they were placed into comfort stations, quote, comfort stations, makeshift stations, um, and made, in, made to act as um, sex slaves during World War II. In, during the entire campaign of that war, there's an estimate of 400,000 women all over China and Japan and Korea who were taken, but my focus is on the Lolas, otherwise known as grannies of the mm -hmm. Philippines. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, there were maybe a thousand women from the Philippines who were taken, mm -hmm. 173 came forward, you right. got to meet 40 of them, and the 16 
or part of your book. It's now 2017. So many years have passed. Um, do you feel as if you know the the women were absolutely silenced over this mistreatment, this this war crime, essentially? Well, yes, absolutely. So in those first 50 years after the war, they were silent, and and you might not have heard any of the other comfort women's stories, like the Korean comfort women's story was also kind of silenced during that time. And there was a period there where finally the Filipinas, in particular, heard. Uh, several women come forward at a conference in, I believe, South Korea, and there, then there was uh, Gabriella Network and several other uh, organizations in the Philippines who came forward and started to ask the women to come forward and tell mm -hmm. their stories. And Lola Maria Henson was the first to come forward, and when she did, many of the other women started to think about, should I tell my story? Is do I, you know, is it is it? shameful, um, can I get justice? And so that's what happened. The women came forward and they started their own campaign for justice in, in uh, coordination with Gabriella Network. I will be honest with you, I could not finish the book. Mm -hmm. It broke my heart. Mm -hmm. um, this has been years and years of work for you. What was it like to hear these stories? And mm -hmm. do you want to share a specific story with us? So when I first went there, with several, several of my students to uh, research a screenplay that we were going to do. We didn't want to actually interview the women. We wanted it to come naturally, organically. So we had these different kinds of activities we did with them. We had a dancing day. We had, um, an, um, we had a letter writing day. We had a drama day, things like that. But as the, the weeks went forward and we got to know them, they were waiting for us to do a formal interview. So we, um, so we said, okay, we're going to do a formal interview. And I was not, I was not savvy to what stories can do to the interviewer, you know? Mm -hmm. So we sat for one afternoon and interviewed um, 15 women and cried with 15 women and dried our tears and prepared to tell the next story. So by the end of the day, we were swollen with tears and one of the women said, the stories have entered their bodies, you know? Um, and hearing their stories, um, for them, telling it to me, it was a reliving of, of the experience. It was if if it, you think it's difficult to read through their testimonies, every time they tell their story, they're reliving it. Mm -hmm. uh, but they felt like, and they feel like, many of them passed away, but they, ha they really feel strongly that the only way to stop it is to know the stories, is to document, a, to document what happened to them in history. So we went through that, and they would take my hand at certain mm -hmm. points and guide my hand to the wounds that they had um, suffered during the war. Um, and so for me, there was a way that the stories and the evidence became very real, uh, and I find that the work has um, has really entered my life in, in a very serious way. Uh, one woman, I'll tell you about one woman, Lola Delore Molina, really, really wanted me to experience where uh, she was captured and how how she lived her life. And she was held at the Emilio Jacinto Elementary School in, in Tondo, Manila. She tried to get into the school before. She wasn't able to do it. So she and I came up with a plan. Mm -hmm. And she said, uh, I'm going to say that I'm your grandmother and that this is the school I went to. And I want to show you where, where, where I went to school. I said, OK. So we got there. And um, what, she, told the, she told the guards that at first. And then they said, oh, really, Lola? She's your, she's your granddaughter. And she said, yes. And somehow the story got turned around. And she said, uh, yes, we have the same grandmother, and um, now she lives in the United States, and our grandmother wanted her to see it. So she completely got caught in her lie about, you know, like, who, like how, who I was and how to get in there. But by that time, the guards were charmed by her. 
and she took me in and she took me um, she was held in a classroom she was only she was only uh, uh, 14 years old she'd been taken while while um, playing in just outside um, and uh, she she was taken and she was raped um, and to unconsciousness and woke up in the bathroom at that same school and uh, was being taken care of by several women. Uh, and she was held there for quite, quite some time during the war. There's more to her story, but yeah, I think yeah. you have to read the book to see it. Um, it's, it was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking for her to go there. It was the first time she had been there since she was held, but it was important to her. Uh, she said, see, Evelyn, I told you this is, I told you this is where I was held. You know, that was important. Don't go away when we come back. Our discussion continues with Evelina Galang. Welcome back. Let's get back to our interview with writer Evelina Galang and her new book, Lola's House. Evelina, you know, obviously the, the some of the stories are um, common in a way, or they have a shared commonality because mm -hmm. they comfort women. You know, mm -hmm. they were taken and uh, basically were sex slaves to the Japanese Imperial Army. Um, where do you, where do you think, you know, the, where do you think these Lolas uh, found their strength to kind of continue going? I, I would imagine after hearing these stories, mm -hmm. you might have been able to figure that out. Well, that, actually, that's a story that, uh, or that's a question that I would ask them. You know, no Lola, how, how Lola did you do it? And somehow, regardless of whether they had faith in God or not, the the answer for them was always Jos, through the mercy of God, they found that strength. Sometimes it was, um, and I thought that, that, that their strength was a, such an interesting thing because here they were like maybe 12 years old when it happened, 16 years old, I mean really, and not knowing what war is or was, um, and were taken like that. But for many of them it was thinking about their families, thinking about, um, thinking about the future, you know, and, and really putting their faith in, in God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And many of them did return home. Yes. Um, for mm -hmm. those who were able to return home, I mean, what was life like for them once they got home? And did they turn to the government, the Philippine, the the, the Filipino government, to address the situation? Did they talked to people. What was it like? Well, I think when they first uh, came back, the women, it depended on what region in the Philippines they were going back home to and uh, it really depended on the family. So for example, in the book, Lola Narcisa, in Lola's house, Lola Narcisa goes up to, she's in Abra, and, and she go, and that entire region was taken. Every single daughter, every single aunt, I mean, we met her, I met her 115-year-old aunt, uh, Lola Filomena, and she was also a survivor. So in that region, everybody was incredibly welcoming and um, understanding, and uh, so she was met with love and support. And she, mm -hmm. that was good. There are other women, for example, Lola Orduja, um, when she went back to her family, uh, there was name calling on the streets. There was a lot of shame connected with the experience. And though her family loved her, she was told at the door, maybe it's better you don't come home. Maybe it's better you go to Manila. So she was, you know, so she left. So that happened. Some of the women, 
um, who shared their stories with their husbands uh, lost their husband. The first, the first conversation in Lola's house is with Lola Catalina. And uh, she actually did a great service to her husband by saying that there was no mister. Um, they, they, they didn't look for him. They, she saved her, her husband and her son at the time. But when they got back together, uh, even though he said he loved her, he never touched her again. He never had affection for her again. Um, there was too much shame for him. Mm. So it was different depending on the women. Mm -hmm. um, regarding uh, the, the, uh, the uh, Philippine government, uh, the women have have been campaigning now for uh, more than for almost 20 years, maybe more than 20 years, and uh, they have asked every single president, sitting president, to uh, approach the Japanese prime minister and ask for a formal apology, for reparations, to make sure these stories are documented in history, and they have not seen follow through. So, the request has been made. The women are on the streets. A lot of times, you know, during the, the, the past 20 years, I've seen the Lola, I've been with the Lolas at, um, at the Japanese embassy, at the U.S. embassy, holding placards, you know, protesting. These women in their old age are protesting, asking for an apology, and they have not received it. It has hit me in where mankind has positioned women. Um, after completing this book and having spent that much time in learning about the Lolas, did it did it do the same thing for you? Oh yes, absolutely. And it, and and their message is clear. If we don't hear these stories, this this testimony, this story, this experience will repeat itself. And we see that happening, right? We see it in the Congo. We see it with the women of Juarez. We see it happening now in the Middle East. Uh, Every war is a war on women. Mm -hmm. and, and it seems um, heartbreaking to me that we are aware of these stories, but we don't really listen to them. We don't really pay attention to what um, has been done to our girls, because they were girls. They weren't really women when these things happened. And it's going to continue. Mm -hmm. And I'm not really sure. I mean, other than to stand up and name each woman and name each story, um, and, and ask people, as difficult as it is, to read every single testimony to the end of the book. I will finish you know? the book. I, no, I will, but I mean, yeah. but what I'm trying to say is, um, until we really understand the magnitude of what happens to individual girls during war, I don't know how we can begin to campaign to stop it, mm -hmm. right? Right, yeah. right. Forgiveness. What did forgiveness mean to the Lolas after so many years, and did they actually ever find forgiveness for their captors or, you know, the, mm -hmm. the people who took them? Um, with the women I talked to, forgiveness for their captors was not a conversation that we had. The fire in them was strong. Their passion for this apology, uh, they were vehement about, like, getting it, right? Um, and, uh, but there is this idea that we cannot heal until uh, we have that conversation together and, and ask for rec reconciliation and receive that from the Japanese mm -hmm. government, not the people, because the people mm -hmm. have oftentimes expressed their sorrow for what has happened, but from the government. It's 2017, and right. this has happened so, so long ago, and you had mentioned earlier that all but one Lola, who's featured in the book, is, uh, has passed away. Right. So I think that one of the things um, Lola's house does is... Um, memorialize each woman and verify uh, what they've been through, 
right? And uh, it becomes one of their desires was to make sure that their stories were documented in history. And it's a book of creative nonfiction. It's couched with um, my own journey because I don't really see how you can bear the stories one after the other. So there's a way that, you know, uh, there, there's a way that I, I, I work with uh, the narrative but I do that so that their stories are documented. And I think that's the most important thing. We can't erase history if it's written down and we acknowledge it. Thank you, Evelina. Thank you for your book and your work. We definitely need to continue talking about women's rights. Don't go away. When we come back, Mia Satya shares a very special program that she has for the LGBTQ Center here in San Francisco. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. Many nonprofits rely on events to raise money, create space for community gathering, and offer opportunities to network. But how many hours in a day do community leaders have when they're busy changing the world? Imagine your next event, gala, festival, or celebration professionally executed with creative ideas and ideals to match your community service. IDK is the community's trusted event production company. Visit idkevents.com for all your event production needs. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Here in the show, we love to profile awesome people of the community. Here's Mia Satya, who's absolutely a community hero. What we're seeing in San Francisco is not unlike what we are seeing in the LGBT community nationally. It's really a tale of two cities. So in San Francisco, we have the fastest growing wealth inequality in the country, which means that the gap between the haves and the have-nots is ever growing. So in the LGBT community, we have over 1.4 million LGBT-owned businesses, which if they were to form their own country, they would be the 10th largest economy in the world. That's bigger than uh, South Korea, Mexico, Canada, Russia. 
they would be the 10th largest economy. That's $2 trillion of economic impact in the United States. And so, you know, we're a huge force to be reckoned with in the global economy. We have a big consumer uh, purchasing power, but we are also facing some of the harshest economic realities in the United States. We have over 40% of the homeless youth in the US are LGBT. And uh, those youth are facing uh, not only homelessness and isolation, they're also dealing with street violence, harassment, and hate crimes. And so we have to be mindful that not everyone in our community is facing these same realities. And there's a lot of people in the middle, but uh, we have to provide programs and resources for people across the spectrum. This month's theme, LGBTQ Economic Justice Month, is equity and liberation. Because we know that economic justice must include an equity framework. We can't have raising the minimum wage without protecting the environment and fighting for labor rights, uh, as well as immigrant rights and other rights of marginalized people. So we're having over 25 events this Economic Justice Month at the center and in the community. And one of those I would like to highlight is Styled, which is our Style for Success uh, fashion and support event where we are uh, empowering people to be job ready by having mini makeovers. So we're offering free clothes from Eileen Fisher, free makeup from Sephora and Benefit Cosmetics, as well as uh, free haircuts from Saints of Steel. And that's on the 16th at the center. On the 19th, we're having a Rock Your Profile, which is how to get your LinkedIn profile as best as it can be. And we're having experts uh, from LinkedIn giving you one-on-one -on -one advice to be competitive in today's job market. On October 21st, we're having a financial planning day. It's a day-long get real with yourself activity where you can hear from experts uh, in different financial sectors on how to save, how to start uh, preparing for purchasing a home, uh, and to really think long-term about what your retirement can look like. And on October 26th, we're having one of the largest LGBT career fairs in the country. Uh, we're hosting it at LinkedIn, and we'll have over 30 employer partners and over 500 job seekers. So we really hope to see you at that. And the last major event I really wanna highlight, and this is the first time that we've offered this event, we're hosting a Queer Street Marketplace on October 28th at and around the center where we're highlighting amazing local businesses that you can come and support that are queer owned, they're trans owned, they're owned by people of color, they're owned by your friends. And we'll be uh, having lots of folks come out, have a drink, have some snacks, buy some stuff. It's better than Etsy and I hope to see you there. Thank you, Mia. Thank you for the wonderful program that you're doing there at the LGBT Center here in San Francisco. It's the Michelle Miao Show, your A to Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. Here's Michelle Miao. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me here tonight. Tonight, we focus the entire show on bait. 
Bay Area American Indian Two-Spirits Organization. The organization dedicates resources to the Native American LGBTQI community, but specifically about the Two-Spirit identity. Let's get to the interview with Ruth and Phoenix. It's an honor to have both of you here to talk about Bates. Uh, let's start with, with Ruth. What is Bates and what does it stand for? Bay Area American Indian Two-Spirits. I'm very proud of our group. I'm not one of the founders, but we have been around since 99, and we've really played an integral part in the history here for um, Native LGBT people. Phoenix, have anything to add to the organization and, and uh, your feelings or thoughts of when it was founded and you as a member? So basically it was part of for us to reclaim being two-spirit. And two-spirit means we have more than one gender, multiple genders. And we wanted to be able to reclaim that, celebrate that, and you know have traditions and celebrations that we're still here and we're reclaiming who we are and we're gonna celebrate and come together as a community so we are not invisible anymore. In what way, or ways, I should say, does the organization provide space for Native American, you know, two-spirit people? Well, we've definitely, at one point, we um, were housed at the um, LGBT Center, um, and we did have drum groups, which Phoenix is a um, drum keeper for, the Bates Drum. Mm -hmm. We had beating, um, we've had um, dance classes, and I will just mention that uh, prior to us, there was gay American Indians who had been around for 40 years, but they were not as involved in many of the cultural aspects, which, which we mentioned drumming and beading and regalia making. So many of us wanted that. Many of us were urban natives. We weren't raised on a reservation. Our families had relocated here from other areas, New Mexico, my family's from Arizona, and we yearned for that. We yearned to do you know, drumming, um, even sweat lodges, various cultural things that we felt we were lacking. So that was one of the opportunities that Bates was able to do is to figure out how to start to have sweats at various places. We've done that in the past. We've had talking circles. We found it was really important to kind of reintroduce these things to many urban natives, but specifically to we call two-spirit, but the LGBT, you know, gay native people, um, because many of them were ostracized by their families. So we know that many gay native people came to San Francisco because they wanted to connect in that way and to be able to be themselves, but we missed our cultural connection. We really did. It's really easy, especially during today's time, to think about LGBTQ as a new phenomenon. And even talking about indigenous people and sexual orientation and gender, gender identity, if you don't know, uh, it's, it's also, I feel, like kind of like a booby trap where you start asking ignorant questions like, you know, are there gay Native American people? But I think culturally speaking, you know, indigenous people have, in, in my opinion at least, have been far more open and understanding of sexual orientation and gender identity um, than I think in even you know today's political storm, if you will. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, pre-colonization, right. definitely. We had terms for multiple, multiple genders. 
And two-spirit is a term that was coined at an international gathering to find a term that reflected more of indigenous people and who we were, and you know, embracing male and female identity. Um, I feel like um, there has been a lot of historical trauma around um, Native people, and um, as you mentioned, um, if you want to share anything about like colonization and the impact mm -hmm. it did make on our community. So, so basically, you know, one of the there have been many federal laws that were passed here to eliminate and exterminate Native Americans um, way back, you know, when when colonization started. You know, there were prices put on Native Americans to to be scalped and killed in California. Uh, there were laws where we couldn't speak or we couldn't even practice our cultures up until 1978. So our, uh, the U.S. has done a lot to try to exterminate who we are and try to exterminate the tribes. And a lot of it has to do with the, the resources that they want to take from us, take the land from us, and pretend that we're all dead. And we're not all dead. We're still very much alive. As two spirits, we've been, we have been around long before pre-colonization, and we had multiple genders, you know, and, and our two-spirit people were very much respected. They were medicine people. Uh, they took care of families. They took care of children. You know, they could be, have a, a, a male or female partner, male, whatever they wanted. It was very fluid, the genders. It, it always has been very fluid, and you weren't, it wasn't binary like it is with, the, with Christianity. We had to be binary. We're not binary. And so part of our, our role here with the Bates community is that you can come as you are. You can identify as you are. Whatever gender, whatever spectrum of the gender you identify as, you're welcome. We welcome you. Don't go away when we come back. Our conversation continues with Ruth and Phoenix. Welcome back. Let's get back to our conversation with Ruth and Phoenix from Bay Area American Indian Two Spirits. Talk to us about some of the issues that matter most to you and how the community rallies together, regardless of, you know, where you are politically or even, you know, sexual orientation or gender-wise. I kind of feel like this country does a really good job dividing us in a lot of ways uh, by using, you know, identity politics. But talk to us about the importance of coming together for issues that you care about. Well, definitely visibility. We are mm -hmm. still fighting visibility. And I know that um, for many of the Two-Spirit people who are fighting strongly because HIV still exists in our community, they have gone to Washington. They are actually making sure that that, that is known, that, the, this, that HIV still affects our population. And guess what? We may not be getting funding because you know, people don't understand. They don't think about, oh, this population is still being affected greatly. Um, so I think visibility is an important factor, you know, yeah. just that's and, and I think, too, like, um, in our Native traditions is that we're all part of the circle. No one person is more important than another. We're all, you know, integral part of it. But part of it, you know, in being more included in the circle is that because of Christianity, because of colonialism, because of genocide, you know, some of our tribes are, are, are you know, s slowly starting to reclaim the two-spirit part. You know, so part of it is by being visible, by having a powwow, by having a drum circle, by having all these cultural things 
we're being visible and and you know saying to the tribes we're here you know we're reclaiming who we are and that's been part of the, us building the bridge with some of the tribes who have had a hard time reclaiming some of the two spirits in their tribes you know and so that's that's been part of the, what we've been working with too as well thanks so much for tuning in today for more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed you can head to michellemeow.com